16 U.S. diplomats and their family members were reportedly held in Chinese quarantine camps against their will. Two congressmen pushing to find out what's happened to them. Mass student protests in a Chinese city. Local authorities there blaming Western countries for the unrest. Joint naval drills kick off between the U.S., South Korea and Japan for the first time in five years. We look at the significance. And Chinese currency devaluing to a new low. What's causing it? And is the Chinese regime concerned? A senior financial analyst breaks it down. Welcome to China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. First, let's zoom in on a growing concern in Washington. U.S. diplomats who are being held in Chinese COVID-19 quarantine camps. Two U.S. lawmakers are putting pressure on Secretary of State Blinken. They want to know what the State Department is doing about it. NTD's Daniel Monahan tells us more. In a letter to Blinken, the congressman state that U.S. embassy officials in Beijing recently confirmed 16 U.S. diplomats and their family members have been involuntarily held in quarantine camps and that this has been going on throughout the pandemic. During that time, they have been subjected to strict confinement measures with no definitive release date. The letter went on to express that Republicans are concerned that diplomats could be or have been pressured to surrender intelligence while detained and that this undignified treatment must come to an end. They further stated that China has engaged in a sustained campaign to deprive diplomats of their liberties under the guise of COVID-19 containment, that it has improperly tested the diplomats for conditions and diseases other than COVID, and that it has attempted to separate quarantined children from their parents. The letter reminded Blinken that China reportedly executed over 30 American intelligence sources during the Obama administration and that the threats posed by China to U.S. diplomats while involuntarily and unjustly quarantined under the guise of COVID-19 protocols are worrisome. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. On Friday, China's foreign ministry called the allegations too ridiculous, denying that China could pressure U.S. diplomats to surrender intelligence while detained. It went on to call China's anti-pandemic policy scientific and effective and said Chinese authorities treat both Chinese citizens and foreigners the same. Mass student protests are gaining steam in China. Now, local police are reportedly going after those leading the demonstrations. Wednesday night, protests against COVID-19-driven lockdowns broke out in at least five colleges in the Chinese city of Jinzhou. Some students say they've been confined to campus for more than a year. Authorities say the strict measures aim to stop virus spread. On Friday, a notice from one college started circulating online. It reads that some students who took the lead in organizing the protests have been detained by public security organs. It also describes the demonstrations as causing trouble and goes on to blame foreign forces for inciting students to, in its words, violate the law. Foreign forces is a term the Chinese Communist Party has used for decades, often to describe people who stand up against the communist regime or disclose things the regime wants to keep under wraps. The strategy appears to have been upheld by current CCP leader Xi Jinping. In one case, he remarked last year that the U.S. and other Western countries will never stand by and watch when they lose their dominant position. He called it inevitable that the West would, in his words, unscrupulously suppress China. He further called on people to maintain strategic focus and develop a fighting spirit against the Western countries. 
With a critical Chinese Communist Party Congress on the horizon, will CCP leader Xi Jinping get a third term in power? And if he does, will China's aggressive approach to foreign policy change? On Thursday, a Chinese official confirmed the answer is no. We Chinese will not capitulate in the face of pressure. We are not afraid of evil forces. We will not sit idle and do nothing when our national interests are being harmed. No one should expect China to swallow the bitter fruit that is harming our own interests. Beijing's foreign policy is often described as its wolf-warrior stance. Despite criticism that it's been counterproductive, China's vice foreign minister says China's diplomats will continue to uphold it. Speaking at a news conference, he said they would overcome all obstacles, mainly referring to reactions and responses from democratic countries. The official is considered to be among the top contenders for China's next foreign minister. That's ahead of an upcoming leadership reshuffle. Naval troops from South Korea, the U.S. and Japan are kicking off joint military exercises. They staged anti-submarine drills on Friday for the first time in five years. The drills were held in international waters near South Korea. Just one day before, North Korea launched two ballistic missiles, right after U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris wrapped up her visit to South Korea. In a statement, South Korea's Navy said the exercises were designed to improve their capability to respond. That's at a time when North Korea consistently posed nuclear and missile threats. The U.S. and Japanese navies said the exercises sought to promote a free and open Indo-Pacific. South Korea hadn't conducted anti-submarine drills since 2017. That's because the country's former government took a softer stance, aiming to improve relations with its northern neighbor and help denuclearization talks. But those talks have stalled between the U.S. and North Korea since 2019. Alongside those drills, Japan is also making efforts to fix its relations with China. September 29th marks the 50th anniversary of when Communist China and Japan set up diplomatic ties. Here's more. Japan's prime minister on Thursday called for constructive relations with China. The remark comes as the two countries mark the 50th anniversary of the normalization of their ties. Currently, Japan-China relations are facing many possibilities, but also challenges and pending issues at the same time. On September 29, 1972, China and Japan signed a communique, pledging peace and friendship. It followed U.S. President Richard Nixon's groundbreaking visit to China earlier that year. In the years coming, Japan and China entered a honeymoon period. Japanese investment and aid poured into China, while Japanese-made animation movies and TV series also won a large number of Chinese fans. Despite these, the two countries remain at odds over disputed East China Sea islands and China's growing military and economic influence in the region. The Chinese ambassador to Japan said on Thursday that diplomatic ties between Japan and China stood at an important turning point. At the same time, Japan considers China a security threat. To counter it, Japan is promoting security and trade frameworks with the United States and other democracies. A survey last year by a Japanese think tank found that 90 percent of Japanese citizens had a negative image of communist China, and that nearly 70 percent of Chinese citizens felt the same way toward Japan. Japan and China are economically the most powerful countries in the region and have a big impact on security there.
The U.S. is spending big dollars to counter Beijing's clot in the Pacific. Washington struck a partnership deal with 14 Pacific Island nations. It also said it would give more than $800 million in financial support. The United States is committed to consulting with all of you and engaging collaboratively at every turn because it's very much in our interest as well as I hope yours. That's what this summit is all about. In comparison, China provided about $1.5 billion of aid to the region from 2006 to 2017. Among the Pacific nations signing the deal is the Solomon Islands. This after the country reportedly said just days earlier that it would not sign such a deal. Next, a closer look at China's currency, the yuan. This week, the yuan fell to its weakest point since 2008, and just last week, it fell past the 7 per dollar line. That's the threshold Chinese officials have been trying to uphold for over the past decade. They've only allowed the yuan to cross the threshold during especially hard times for China's economy. NDD's Don Ma spoke with Joseph Trevisani, senior analyst at FX Street, for details on what's happening. Joseph, thanks for joining us. You know, I just want to talk to you about the strengthening dollar and the weakening yuan. Do, sure. do you believe that the tumbling yuan is more due to, to, to the fact that the dollar is going up or is it more because of the chi- Chinese economy going down? Well, thank you for having me. It's a combination of both, and it's true around the world. If you look at all the currencies that trade against the dollar, which is primarily everything, the dollar's strength is universal right now. And it is primarily because of the U.S. Fed's insistence that it's going to raise rates to get inflation under control. No one else is taking such a hard line, no other central bank is taking such a hard line against inflation based on interest rate policy. So that's the main reason. And how do you think the Chinese government feels about the yuan weakening against the dollar? Well, the Chinese government, like everyone else, probably has a slightly schizophrenic view of this. It is, of course, good for exports, meaning Chinese exports, just like it's good for British exports, European exports, because it weakens their, the price of their current, their um, exports, their goods around the world. On the other hand, it's much worse for domestic consumers and for domestic consumption, because almost all raw materials in the world are priced in dollars, meaning it costs more in the local currency, and any imported items into a country will cost much more for the local consumer for the same reason. So it's a difficult balancing act more than anything else. But in the long term, it's dangerous, right? What if the peg breaks, right? Yes. In the long term, I think a weak currency is dangerous for almost any economy because it means that capital is going to be more reluctant to enter that country because the returns are poor and they have to worry a great deal about repatriation of money. So I think for in the long term, it's dangerous for the Chinese economy, as it is for almost any other economy that has a habitually weak currency. Do you think China has enough reserves to keep the keep the peg going? I think they do. I don't think China has any problem about reserves. That's probably another reason why they're not terribly worried and they're not really making a lot of rhetorical interventions in the market because if it, if it came to it, I think they could handle it as far as the currency reserves go. All right. Thank you very much, Joseph Trevisani, FX Street. Thanks for coming today. Thank you very much for having me. Have a good day. Coming up with Chinese leader Xi Jinping in the run-up to securing a third term, how does his policy stand to impact the U.S.? Plus, is the Chinese market still attractive to foreign companies after so much economic turbulence? And should Taiwan still fear a possible invasion? He wants to be the great 
you know, the only Chinese Communist Party leader to, to unify the country. China has big problems in terms of their economy. I think we should continue to try to decouple uh, from China economically, trade-wise. Try to isolate China as much as possible and, and force China to focus inward. We tap James Goring, author of The China Crisis, for insight after the break. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Will foreign companies continue to leave China? On one hand, Beijing's strict zero-COVID-19 policy and frequent lockdowns have made doing business there difficult. But China's yuan fell to record lows against the dollar this week. We hear from James Gorey, author of The China Crisis, for more on what that means. There's a lot of buzz around Xi Jinping getting this third term. So if he succeeds with that, what is the significance there? What does that mean in terms of America? Well, first, I think it's there's no doubt that he'll have a third term unless something unforeseen happens. He's he's, he's had his purges. He's taken care of the, his, his adversaries and, and political uh, opponents. So I, I think it's a shoe in for a third term. Uh, what will change? I, I think the die has already been cast uh, largely given the fact that China is supporting Russia in their Ukrainian adventure. And, and um, you know, so there's been a lot of kind of a, you know, pick one side or the other. And, and they coordinated with Russia on that uh, invasion. And they're doing a lot of coordination on energy, on food and, and uh, currency. So Russia and China are pretty married. And they're both connected to this invasion and to the Ukraine. And so I don't see great cooperation uh, I see an era much more of, of, of competition um, and even adversarial. How would Xi Jinping's third term change anything in regards to Taiwan? Would it embolden China, or how do you see that? Well, it's, Xi Jinping has defined it as a one of his top priorities, the reunification of, of the country. And he wants to have that legacy, and he wants to be the great, you know, the only Chinese Communist Party leader to to unify the country. So it's... It's definitely a, a top priority for him. Now, how he does it and when he does it, um, that remains to be seen. But um, it's very important. It's a priority, absolutely. And given Taiwan's strategic and economic importance and ideological importance to the West, say the U.S., free countries and all that, it seems to... But this administration has ramped up efforts, right? We have all these big arms sales, but none of those have been delivered to Taiwan. So going forward, do you see anything changing in terms of our relationship with Taiwan? Would we actually send troops there, for example? Again, we've, we've heard yes and, and then no. Uh, I would say if, just as an indication of the commitment level or the confidence level, I should say, in America's commitment to Taiwan, um, Japan... Uh, wrote a white paper not too long ago and, and publicized it. And in that, in that white paper, they announced that a secure and free Taiwan is, is, a, is a secure, is, is a key security factor for, for uh, Japan's security. So they shouldn't have to say that. I wrote a piece on that as well. But the idea then is, look, we are, the, the region is, is not too confident in America's uh, resolve towards defending Taiwan. I think there's too much ambiguity. If you want my opinion, I think you do. That's what we're talking. Um, I think that there's a little bit much, a bit too much ambiguity and a little bit too much back and forth on what our policy really is. And so 
Um, I don't, I don't, it's, it's, I, I think it's, we're less secure and less confident in that region than we have been in the past. And expanding out from Taiwan and looking at, say, all of China's policies, especially the economic front, with Xi Jinping and his third term, what should the U.S. priorities be in terms of the relationship between the U.S. and China? Well, I think we should continue to try to decouple uh, from China economically, trade-wise. Um, China is probably going to do that, try to do that from a currency standpoint in, in some fashion. Um, China has big problems in terms of their economy, their real estate uh, sector is in a depression. Um, unemployment among the young is, is now over 20 percent, which is huge. Uh, the national average is around five and a half percent. So there's some large, large issues that need to be addressed. And uh, what the U.S. should do is try to try to isolate China as much as possible. And, and force China to focus inward, um, I think would be the idea. Um, I, I think, unfortunately, that, that Xi Jinping has, has a focus on ex external adventures, um, Taiwan being one, but he certainly is complicit in, in the Ukraine invasion um, with his unlimited support, as you point out. So America's policy ought to contain China and ought to make it difficult to, for China to, to exert its influence externally. On the economic front, James, it seems because Xi Jinping was such a champion of the COVID-19 policy and the zero COVID-19 policy and all these lockdowns, that's really made a lot of foreign manufacturers leave China. But recently with, say, the yuan devaluing in terms of the dollar, it's now suddenly more, you know, profitable for other countries to go in. So what do you see in terms of these two? Is that going to balance it or are other countries still going to leave? I think other countries are still going to leave. You know, there was nearshoring. That trend started before COVID, before the CCP virus and the pandemic. And that trend was, was created by China. I mean, China's labor costs are higher. Their IP theft is rampant. Um, and, you know, companies would find themselves competing against their own designs from China, right? So um, the nearshoring, you know, Europeans relocating uh, factories in, say, Turkey, Americans relocating factories in, say, Mexico and so forth, um, and Philippines and Vietnam picking up some of the slack from China, that's going to continue, I think, because the bloom is off the rose in terms of China and labor and as an economic um, as an economic boom, the shipping costs are, are, are high, higher, there's more risks. Um, and there's very little recourse in China. So I think that bloom is off the rose. I don't think people are going to go back. And when, you know, when a company decides to leave a place or build a place, that, that's not a decision they make, you know, in a matter of days or weeks. It's a, it's a year or two years or three years long decision. So I don't see that I don't see people, companies returning to China the way they used to. And James, earlier you mentioned how both China and the U.S. also need to look at their internal issues. And it seems in America, you've also written about this, how China has infiltrated many of the institutions, administrations and security areas. So what would be some ways of bolstering our defenses given all of this infiltration? That's a great question. I mean, you've got it. it it's. You know, there was an article recently about 130 or 40 engineers from when a, one government agency were, were, were Chinese agents, for lack of a better word, um, Chinese uh, uh, 
you know, pe- people lean towards China passing along information potentially, so forth. So how do you combat that without going after Chinese people for say that that's that's a horrible thing. So you can't you have to kind of unwind it and make the the um, make the kind of the penalty very severe and um, defund um, those com- those companies that do that and defund universities, make universities pay for for their professors um, who are you know, taking part in a thousand talents or other well, otherwise exporting technical and highly strategic IP. Um, so it's not easy. It wasn't accomplished in a day. It was it was done over a long period of time with a lot of thought and a lot of preparation on the part of the Chinese. So it needs to be swiftly handled, um, but it also needs to be fairly handled. Um, but uh, I think you need to to err on the side of security at this point if we're looking at so much of our IP continuing to go to China. And you know they're 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 a formidable force in robotics and AI and biotech, bioengineering, and a lot of that's come from from the U.S. So it's not a great scenario. It certainly is not. But um, how, how to go about doing it, I, I, I don't have all the answers, but I think it's something needs to be done and swiftly and um, effectively. And James, any last words you'd like to add? Oh, I just think that, thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's, it's uh, been great. Um, I just think we're looking at, 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 a, more, at a more desperate China in, in, in large measure. Um, and one more note on Xi Jinping, the worse things get in China, the more power goes to the CCP. So you know, the lockdowns for four or five or a handful of, of, of COVID cases, that doesn't solve anything except, except keep more power, you know, more power upward into the CCP. So I think that as things get, get more difficult this coming year with inflation, with currency devaluation, with unemployment, with worsening environmental concerns in China and, and, and quite frankly, a worsening attitude among its young people, uh, things are going to get more, more competitive, more difficult between, between our countries and within our countries. So buckle up. James, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thanks, Tiffany. Talk to you soon. Take care. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ndd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.